my kind of tonal range, which is partly stylistic, partly just because I'm not uh, a natural public speaker, as you'll, you'll come to learn. But the beauty of that is um, I'm quite confident in the Lord when I speak rather than myself, which is very helpful indeed. Have you all got Bibles in front of you? You've all got Bibles in front of you. Excellent. Um, Mark chapter 10 then, verse 17. You'll want to have that open because we're going to work through that text. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. It's probably called something like the rich young man. Page 1014. There you go. Lovely. I'll read that for us. Just give you a couple of extra seconds to have that in front of you. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is none who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Well, some of you have enjoyed meeting my little boy Harvey there. And... Harvey, like most four-year-old boys, 
he thinks that he can do almost anything. Harvey's he's quite a conscientious little boy as well. He does like to help with various chores around the house, often volunteering his services to help. And one thing in particular Harvey thinks he's particularly adept at is handling a drill, nice big electric power drill, <laughs> amongst other things. And despite not being able to actually lift one, he still thinks that he can. And I, I do love Harvey, of course I do, and I, I admire his confidence, but it's a little bit out of touch, isn't it? He's a little bit out of touch with reality at times. And quite frankly, despite how aspirational he is, he's, he's just a bit misguided about his ability. His confidence is misplaced. He can't do what he thinks he can. And just like Harvey, as we've just read, Mark chapter 10, verse 17, we meet this man as well, don't we, who has a similarly misplaced confidence. Not in his ability to use power drills, of course, but in his ability to make himself right with God. That is to be acceptable before God as worthy of the eternal life he asks about, to avoid the consequences of sin. And as we're going to see in Jesus' surprising reply to the man's question about eternal life, when it comes to being made right with God, we are not to put our confidence in ourselves. We are to put our confidence in God himself. And very simply, those will be our two points this morning that you can follow along. Do not put confidence in yourself but put your confidence in God. <clears throat> Let me just say a quick prayer for us and we'll, we'll continue with the, the sermon. Father in heaven, you tell us that man cannot live on bread alone. Father, I pray that you would feed us this morning on the very words of God, that we may be satisfied, challenged and changed, and made more into the likeness of your dear son, the Lord Jesus. We ask in his precious name. Amen. So don't put confidence in yourself. Look down again, verse 17, in your Bibles, if you would. And we do meet this man, don't we? Who's, he's got a very earnest desire, doesn't he, to, to inquire about eternal life. And so he runs up to Jesus, doesn't he? He, he intercepts Jesus on his journey, in fact. He, he kneels down before him. He's really serious, really genuine, and he asks this very important question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's a good question, isn't it? Who doesn't want to know the answer to that question? And so you can sense the man's disappointment, can't you? When Jesus seemingly evades the question with a rather surprising reply. You can see that down in verse 18. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Certainly not what the man expected and perhaps not what we would have expected either. But Jesus has, has clearly seen a little problem in this man's question, hasn't he? I wonder if you spotted what that was as well. Because this man's question, it, it sounds noble enough on the surface, doesn't it? 
But just look how he phrased the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He clearly doesn't know what he needs to do, but he assumes that there is something to do and that he would be able to do it. His question reveals, doesn't it, where he's putting his confidence in himself. He is confident in himself because he thinks that he is a good person before God. He thinks that he's only one step away from being worthy of inheriting that all-elusive eternal life. He doesn't think of himself primarily as a sinner, does he? he? He sees himself simply as someone who needs to do one more good thing to be acceptable before God. Rather than seeing himself as someone who carries an eternal weight of bad deeds and sin that first needs atoning for. And that's precisely why Jesus responds why he does, isn't it? See, by by getting this man to think about the goodness of God, with that question, why do you call me good? No one except God is good. He's also trying to get this man to re-examine the basic premise of that question. As if to say, hang on a minute, if God alone is good, do you still want to ask that question that way? In effect, Jesus is saying, do you really think, in comparison to God, that you are good? Do you really want to put your confidence in you? Which, of, of course, he does, doesn't he? As is judiciously revealed by Jesus' response in the follow-up queries. You can see that in verse 19. Jesus says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. And with just as much confidence as Harvey trying to convince me that he really does know how to use a power drill, this man jumps at the chance to confirm that he has kept all of these commands since his youth. See, Jesus, I've done a bang-up job so far. But it's not kind to let people live in their delusions, is it? So Jesus tries to bring reality home by finally answering the question. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But verse 22, it's not the answer that that man was looking for, was it? Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus' love has broken this man's heart. But at the same time, Jesus has revealed this man's heart. Jesus' command, you see, to this man has proved that this fellow neither loves God nor other people. He doesn't just lack one more good deed to do. He's responsible for an abundance of bad. You know, when we're bad, when there is 
any sin in us, we are, we are unworthy of God, fallen short of his glory, unable to inherit eternal life, no matter how many good deeds and law-keeping we have managed to achieve. You know, this fellow, he might have been able to obey all those easy commands which Jesus has mentioned to him, but this guy has he's fallen at the first hurdle, hasn't he, really? You shall have no other gods before me, is the very first commandment. And he's broken it because God has told him to give up his wealth and he has refused to do it. He has also failed to love his neighbour as himself, in this case the poor whom Jesus asks him to donate his wealth to. So he's not good, but he's also not that nice, is he? He'd rather lose out on treasures in heaven and eternal life than sell his possessions to help those in need. And is not that not the very essence of sin? Demonstrated right there. Despite probably looking very moral and upstanding in his public life, Jesus has shown that this guy's heart is just full of sin. When it comes to it, he only really has love for himself. He is not good. And we can see the reason that this man is so selfish and uncompassionate is it's because that's what he thinks of God. The reason he hoards wealth for himself is because he doesn't actually think that God is generous, generous enough to, to give back to him. He thinks God can only do good to him if he earns it, if he works for it, if he keeps God's laws. As if God is incapable of showing grace or mercy or any form of kindness. And his love for God is cold because he, he thinks God's love for him is cold. He sees, he sees God's law, doesn't he? Not as, not as a kind of kind way for God to expose sin so that we might turn and run needy to receive forgiveness from a gracious God. But rather he sees the law and God's law-keeping as as his way to earn salvation before God, like an employee earning wages from a boss who now owes him. And there doesn't need to be love or respect in that kind of relationship. And the eternal gracious God of love hates that because it's just not true. To make God out to be this kind of stingy miser who is either unwilling or unable to show compassion is is the height of evil. And God cannot forgive that on the basis of keeping a few of his laws. Which ultimately, this man can't actually keep perfectly anyway, can he? And so his self-confidence is utterly misplaced. And his confidence is misplaced because of his understanding of who God is. is just so off the charts. It's misguided. Because what is the simple answer to the question that he asked in the first place? Nothing. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Nothing. 
What can you do to inherit eternal life? Absolutely nothing. And do you know what? God doesn't care about our law keeping. God doesn't even care about our good intentions when we have hearts as rotten as this man's. You know, don't get me wrong, okay? Of course, obeying God and having a concern about the afterlife are good things, but they are not what make us right with God when we are greedy and selfish like this man. Our sin runs so much deeper than merely failing to keep God's commands as this man has demonstrated for us. And that is why Jesus turns to his disciples and says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Not because having wealth is bad, in and of itself, by the way, you know. Think of Solomon, think of David, think of Job, think of Abraham. Most of us, quite frankly, we live in England. We are rich people. But because having anything, absolutely anything, that we love or trust more than God puts us puts eternal life beyond our reach. You know, wealth does, of course, hold a a particular danger for everyone. It can be just as much of an idol, can't it, for the the homeless person on the streets dreaming of a champagne lifestyle as it is for the man who's actually living it. And if you want to know what your idols are, just think to yourself for a quick second, what would I be disappointed to give up? If Jesus asked me to. As a Christian, the the first thing we've got to say to ourselves this morning is do not put confidence in yourself to be made right with God. And I know we. We slip into thinking this way just absolutely all the time in ways we probably aren't even aware of. You know, if you just take something, for instance, that you know the Bible tells you you should do. Let's take prayer, for instance. We know God wants us to pray. But we don't often feel like doing it. We don't often feel like we do it adequately. We always feel like there's something lacking in our prayer life, I would have thought. It's typical for most Christians. but So when you go through a nice purple patch of prayer, for instance, you, know, you can feel rather good about yourself, can't you? In fact, we can think that God thinks more of us, that God is more pleased of us, with us for, for how well we've prayed or how frequently have we, we have prayed. You know, especially in comparison to those times when our prayer life has been intermittent and half-hearted. You know, even for mature Christians, it's, it's a battle not to feel proud when we actually live how we know God wants us to. It's just the nature of sin that remains in us, even when we're saved, isn't it? That, and it can crop up anywhere at any moment. We can think that God must be extra pleased with us for, for not getting angry at the kids, for instance. That would be my one. Or for, for serving in church when we actually 
didn't really feel like doing it that time or you know, even even silly things we can like stick into the speed limit or or not drinking too much or eating healthily we can literally legalize anything can't we but christian jesus says no don't do that don't think like that and we need to repent actually of of putting confidence in ourselves because god's love for you is not dependent on your performance so christian don't put confidence in yourself i will say that again but repent when it inevitably happens don't think of this so much as a, a command but think of this as a, an invitation you know the, the way we do that is by believing isn't it by by understanding by knowing in our minds in our hearts that we can do nothing to save ourselves from sin and the application for a, a passage like this it really does begin in the mind and i would just simply say to you Keep reminding yourself over and over and over that God's love for you and desire to save you does not lie in your obedience, not one bit. And in fact, uh, and I think this has been pretty good advice for for people who I've I've preached to um, and, and chatted with on this topic. You might even wish to deliberately not do something simply to demonstrate to yourself that your confidence isn't in you. If you're the, especially if you're the person who is particularly prone to, you know, very conscientious, always needing to be seen to doing the right thing, fulfilling your obligations and uh, keeping up with your duties. Sometimes, occasionally, just don't. Because God's not going to be any less satisfied with you if you do or you don't. It's a a good little way sometimes, especially if you do struggle in that way, to, to just reinforce to yourself how secure you are in God, not because of yourself, how independent from yourself you are. But this is only half the picture, isn't it? Because if we're not to place our confidence in ourselves, where should our confidence be? Well, if you want to look down with me in verse 24 in your Bibles. Jesus has just commented, hasn't he, to his disciples how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And we learn that the disciples were amazed by this saying. Why? Was it because they were rich too? Not at all. Because we learn, in fact, in verse 28, don't we, that whatever they did have, you know, they've, they've given it up to follow Jesus. No. These disciples were amazed because they had made the connection that although the rich man's greatest love, his idol, we could say, was money, everyone has idols. 
That is, as we said earlier, something that we love or trust in more than God himself. Everyone, whether rich or poor, healthy or sick, themselves included, have a sinful heart. Something that has loved someone or something more than God because we have thought so little of God and have admired so little of his beauty. The disciples here, they, they've understood that sin is not merely in the doing, but it is in the being. Ably demonstrated by this rich man who has showed them that no amount of law-keeping can change a sinful heart. But this led them to, to posit a much better question, didn't it? Just look down with me at verse 26. The disciples asked, Then who can be saved? And this, friends, is a, a very good question to ask indeed. Much less problematic than the man's in the first instance. Do you see, firstly, they have not inquired about eternal life. They have asked about being saved from sin. And secondly, they don't ask, what must I do? Rather, they've pondered, who can be? And the difference being that instead of asking about something they really want, they've asked about something that they really need. And in asking the question, who can be? They recognise that sin is something that no man can save himself from. That you can be as self-confident as you like. It won't make a blind bit of difference to your salvation. And Christian, how wonderful for us when we understand what the disciples do in verse 26. How wonderful when we have full recognition of our need to be saved from our sinful nature and a complete understanding that we can do nothing about it ourselves. And Christian, if that is a description of you this morning, you are in a very good place. When we are able to acknowledge and admit our sin, when every ounce of confidence in yourself has melted away, to be so completely sure that you cannot save you is a wonderful gift from the Lord. Because, and this is my absolute favourite part of this passage, when you are in that position, Jesus has this soul-reviving answer for us. Just look down with me again at verse 27. Jesus said, doesn't he? With man, it is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. And what glory. Do you not just sense the majestic beauty of those words? Do those words not ease your weary soul? You know, it's got kind of echoes to my mind of um, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise and a bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Jesus says, with God, all things are 
possible, including our salvation from the sin that taints every good deed and stains every noble desire, keeping us eternally out of reach from the perfection required to be right with God. And what Jesus is saying here, isn't he, is put your confidence in God alone. Not just that he can save, but that he will save. And in, by saying that, by saving, he grants that we might inherit eternal life because he does everything we need for us. You know, what's really interesting about this statement, isn't it, is that Jesus doesn't say how God will save. He doesn't tell the disciples how that's actually possible. If you uh, read on in in Mark chapter 10, you, you start to find out, don't you? But Jesus at this point deliberately leaves that bit out. Not because the how isn't important, but because Jesus is trying to show his disciples and us that we can have confidence in God simply because of who God is. Confidence in his character and his power. Jesus wants us to have confidence in that God simply, well, in God, simply that he is the kind of God who longs to save people and not to destroy them, to, to have a right mind about who God is and, and what he wants to do. That, you know, the, the confidence that those saints of old had, you know, that great cloud of witnesses from Hebrews 11 who trusted God before they knew the details of how he would save them. All they knew is that some way, somehow, God would save his people from their sin, just like he promised. And friends, we know what they didn't. That Jesus himself is the way. You know, by by living that sinless life on our behalf, by dying the death that our sin deserved on the cross and by rising again to new life, those three things, he brings us the hope that if we simply trust that he did those things for us, we gain the merits of his perfection while he takes away the guilt of our sin. And Christian, we have confidence in him because his work is finished. It's done. It is complete. There is nothing to add, not from him, not from us. And now we simply rejoice that God has indeed done the impossible. As a Christian, I'll say it again, put your confidence in God. Acknowledge your sin, admit your guilt, confess your helplessness. And what I want from us this morning is is to really try hard to avoid the trap, you know, falling into that trap of thinking, what must I do for God? 
Because often what happens when you, you get that kind of fresh uh, kind of confidence or kind of enthusiasm from feeling the relief of the gospel to know your, your sins are forgiven, it can fill you with a bit of energy and zeal and you think, I'm just going to go and do lots of things. I'll, I'll serve, I'll commit, I'll read my Bible more, I'll pray more, I'll make an extra effort to witness. Even if that's happened this morning, I I don't want you to do that straight away. Don't use that sense of freedom just yet to springboard into doing things and serving for Christ, thinking about how you can fill up your schedule. Because a full calendar does not take a lot of effort. And God has plenty of work for you to do, and you will do it. First... I want you to spend time meditating on what God has said to you today. Because in these verses, Jesus is not calling you, is he, to do anything. Except perhaps to be still and know that he is God. Because he knows that you are transformed through the renewal of your mind as the truths of the gospel of grace and truth fill us with hope. And actually we we need to be more like Mary on the back of a, a passage like this. You know, Mary who chose the better part when she sat at Jesus' feet and simply listened to him. And I want you to recognize To believe that Jesus is your grounds for confidence before God. Your confidence will not come from doing. It won't come from extra Bible reading. It won't come from your prayer life. It will not come from your evangelism. It will not come from your tithing. It will not come from your charity work. It will not come from your church attendance. It will only come by knowing Christ well enough to trust him to do the saving for you. Although that does just happen to come through Bible reading and prayer and church attendance. and You see where I'm going with that. So when you go home later, or you just find a bit of time this week, open your Bibles again. Mark 10, 17. Read it through. Pray about it. Meditate on it. Think on it. Thank God because of his love for you in Christ and simply enjoy the fact that he has done everything you need to secure your salvation, which you claim simply by believing and relax. Remember the words of this sermon and just let your heart start warming up until it burns within you and the joy of salvation is returned. And then you will know what it means when God says, For I desire steadfast love and not a sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Friends, once we have been saved by Jesus... Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do for the glory of God.
It, ju it just will be that way. If you are a thrilled and happy and confident believer in the Lord Jesus, not in yourself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Nothing. Who then can be saved? With God, all things are possible. Thank Jesus. Amen.